John chapter 5. It's, um, this is a chapter that is going to answer the big questions of the world. So, um, who is Jesus? That is actually the great question of human history. Who is Jesus? Was he a rabbi? Was he a madman? Was he the wisest teacher of all time? Was he a perfect man? Was he a guru? Was he a holy man? Or is he the one God, the creator of heavens and earth in human flesh? Well, Jesus' dearest friend during his last years on earth wrote this gospel for us to tell us who he is. That's his purpose. He's told us a lot lately. Uh, his, his answer is, is that he's God in human flesh. And John chapter 5 has one of the best known healing miracles and one of the most important but least known discourses of Jesus. In other words, a long discourse, Jesus talking for a long period of time. And, this, and the, the Lord says a lot here. The Lord Jesus says a lot here in chapter 5. He tells us more about who he is in chapter 5 than just about anywhere else in the Bible. You can find detail about who Christ is. But people don't, I don't know, I guess casual readers kind of breeze through it because it's not simple. It's not simple reading. It's typical John, simple language but complex ideas. So a lot of people aren't very familiar with this portion. But um, it starts with the healing miracle. That's how the whole chapter begins, a healing miracle. And that's actually what we're going to look at today. Um, not the healing itself, but what Jesus tells the man he heals to do. That's what we're going to talk about today. And the controversy that that causes. So, um, yes, Jesus gets in hot water with the religious leaders again. <laughs> in the temple. No surprise there. But John's style, you know, is always to give just a few simple, out of long conversations or discussions with people, he gives just, often just gives a few sentences. So you have to kind of tease out. But he gives us what he gives us for a definite purpose, and we want to go for that purpose, not just try to figure out everything that's going on here. But um, So this is kind of like that, short, clipped um, words between people. But it takes us to this full-length, uh, amazing declaration by Jesus that has fascinated theologians for 2,000 years, the second half of John chapter 5. So, oh, i got to mention this too. There's also a textual issue here. You know what we mean by that? like the text. We've run into this before in other places. So um, there's a few lines that don't seem to belong and were added later. My Bible puts them in brackets so you know that um, we'll talk about that in a little bit too. So there's several places in John where that happens which, it, which appears to be at some point somebody felt like they needed to enhance the narration so I'll explain that when we get there. But um, notice also as we work through this the way religion can get in the way of people knowing God. And that happens all the time. And it happens today just like it did back then. So we will see uh, superstitions get in the way and the way little man-made rules can keep us from God when you have religious authorities that think their ideas are more important than what God actually says in the Bible. So we'll talk about all that stuff. But let's start at the beginning, which as Julie Andrews would sing is a very good place to start. Um, <laughs> Verse 1, after these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So John doesn't say which feast. It doesn't really matter to the story. There, there were three required feasts that all men of Israel were supposed to attend every year 
in Jerusalem and was probably one of those, but it doesn't even say that. So we're not sure about that. But the law of Moses required three different feasts, attendance at three different feasts. But that means Jerusalem is going to be really crowded. Jerusalem's a beautiful city, but it's not a huge city. But it, it's going to be very crowded. And this account centers around a, a pool of water called the Pool of Bethesda. And Bethesda means house of mercy. That's not necessarily important to this, but that's what the word actually means. So they've got a pool there when all the people are coming. That's nice. It's like at a hotel for the kids to swim in. No, that's not what it's about at all. It's not that. It's not a little pool either. It's a big pool. And... Uh, Remember, what's the heart of Jerusalem? What's the main thing that's there? The great temple, right? And this is a glorious, spectacular temple built by an unbeliever, Herod the Great, who just liked to build amazing things. And since he was the king of Jerusalem and Judea, he said, we're going to have the best temple in the world. And he built the best temple in the world until the Romans destroyed it about five years after it was finished. Um, tens of thousands of people come to worship at these three major feasts. So Jerusalem is crowded. It's filled up with people. And one of the things these thousands of people are supposed to do when they're coming to worship at the temple and bring their sacrifices and all that was to ritually cleanse themselves with water. That was called mikveh. You have to do the mikveh, which is going into these pools and cleansing yourself. So to accommodate the great numbers, the tens of thousands of people that are coming, um, there were several large pools of water maintained outside the gates of Jerusalem because the city itself doesn't have room for all of that. Um, but there were several of these. In fact, if you've been reading the news this week, they just uncovered the pool of Siloam, which is another large pool outside of another gate. It's just like the pool we're talking about today. They just uncovered it. They said it's about the size of two Olympic uh, pools. It's large. These are large places. So they're not, they're not little hotel pools. They're, they're, they're big because a lot of people are going to go there, here to do this ritual cleansing thing. So verse 2 says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. So the sheep gate is in the northern corner of the city. That's kind of where they bring in the sheep, right, for sacrifices. That's the place they, they bring them to the temple. So... The pool of Bethesda was very large from what we know from archaeology. It was, um, it was like a, a soccer field. It was, it was that big. So um, it, again, it's to accommodate a lot of people. It, it, and, there were, and it says in verse 2, there were five porticos. What's a portico? Well, if you've ever seen a picture of a Roman city or a Greek city, you know, there's, there's these covered, very tall columns and a covering over the top that's open to the air. So it's, um, it's a place where you can be shaded from the sun, be protected from the sun, but have a lot of stuff going. The temple had a very large porticos, and they, Jesus would do his teaching under those in the shade of those things, and that's where a lot of people did their things. So it's that. But it says he had five porticos. So usually these pools are rectangular, so you've got four. They surround the pool, right? So, uh, and people used to say, you know, people when they started attacking the Bible, especially like in the 1800s and stuff like that, the thinkers, you know, the wise men that wanted to debunk Christianity, they would say, well, there are no pools with five porticos. That's the mistake. John is wrong about that. Well, guess what happened? Those archaeologists were working in the 1950s, and they uncovered the pool of Bethesda, and it's all exposed, and they've studied it, and all that kind of stuff. And I want to show you some pictures of it just real briefly here. 
Um, the Pool of Bethesda has been excavated and studied, and unlike most pools for mikvah, the pool had two parts. So there was a, um, this is up, it's down here towards the bottom. It says Southern Pool and Northern Pool. Can you see that? There's giants back here. It's actually, this is a scale model of Jerusalem that's in Israel, uh, as, as much as we know about it from archaeology. So those are actually normal people in the cities, tiny. But, um, but there shows, that's, that's the Pool of Bethesda right down there. And you can see part of it, one pool, it's divided. One pool was raised above the other pool. So it was in two parts. And the other pool, so the water, they could adjust how much water would be in the lower section from the upper section, and they could maintain the proper level of water for people to do the mikvah thing. So, so that's how it was actually designed. Um, so there's two parts, one's higher than the other. And, and what's the, where's the fifth portico? Well, it's right there. It's the one that separates the two pools. So that one does have a fifth portico. It's not four porticos. So John should not have been doubted. He was there. He knew all about it. Let's look at this next picture real quick. So the lower portion had a landing with high steps all along it. So this is the lower pool, and you can see the steps there. This is a, this is just a you know a picture of somebody developed for it. This is what it looked like though, from what we we know from archaeology. So um, that portico there, where the steps are, that's where our story begins. Okay, you can take that down now. So that just wanted you to see it and get kind of a feel for it. It's just outside the gate there, the sheep gate in Jerusalem. So verse three tells us people with afflictions and illnesses gathered under that portico near where those steps were, hoping to be healed. So verse 3 says, in these, the porticos, lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. Just a, just a multitude of misery right there under those porticos. So these poor souls believed, and we don't know how this got started, this idea, but they believed that an angel sometimes came down and stirred the water of the pool. And if you could get there first, you would be healed and everybody else was out of luck. That was, a, that was the belief at the time. So I don't know how that got started with regard to this particular pool, but that was what people believed in. So all these people gathered there, hoping to be there when the waters were stirred and then slip into the water and hopefully first and, and find a, a healing somewhere. Now this is where the textual issue comes in. So the second part of verse 3, the last part of verse 3, and all of verse 4 don't exist in any of the Greek manuscripts that we have that are early. All the Greek manuscripts that are early. And they're not in any of the translations except for a couple of Latin, a little bit later, but fairly early Latin translations. So the Bible was written, the New Testament's written in Greek. It was translated into a lot of languages, obviously, for other people. Somehow it got into the Latin version, th those verses. And those verse versions say in verse 3, the middle of verse 3, they were waiting for the moving of the waters for an angel of the Lord went down at a certain season into the pool and stirred up the waters. Whoever then first, after stirring up the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. So now again, my Bible has those words in brackets. And yours might have them in brackets or some kind of marking or an um, marginal notation saying these words are not found in the earliest manuscripts. They are almost certainly added. There were some church fathers that were very early that tell the story about the angel and stirring up the water. So somebody might have learned that it might have been, it was obviously a real thing that was going on that people believed at the time. So some people wrote about it and somebody thought it would be better to stick it in here 
uh, in the Latin version anyway of the Bible, so that it would explain verse 7. So skip down to verse 7 real quick. This is why somebody would add it, because verse 7 is a little bit confusing if you don't know the, the history behind it. Verse 7, uh, a man tells Jesus, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. So there's that idea, but if you didn't have that sort of background information about, well, why would he need to step into the thing? So, so if that story was indeed going around, that that's the way that was, somebody thought, well, I should put that in there. So that's probably what happened. It's probably not original. It doesn't really matter. It's the, the, the issue is the same thing. This guy thinks he has to get into the water to be well, and he has to beat everybody to the water. That's the whole idea. So um, the additions there in verse 3 and 4 kind of give context to that. That's why somebody probably put that in. Likely this is what happened. Somebody wrote it in the margin, and the next guy said, oh, this was supposed to be in there, and they left it out, and then he stuck it in. the. That happens a lot with, with the new, some new, certain New Testament manuscripts. Somebody writes a marginal note, and it ends up in the text. But we know where all those are because we have all these manuscripts to compare with each other, so it's not a complicated thing. But the Pool of Bethesda in the first century, it was... So just from that, just from what I told you, it's kind of like Lourdes and some of these other places where something wonderful happened or weird happened and it kind of caught on and everybody started flocking there and it became a thing to flock there, you know, to get healed. All of these people came there to get healed. So has anybody ever been to Lourdes in France? I mean, it's like a, it's the healing place you're supposed to go to. In 1858, a, a little servant girl named Bernadette said the Virgin Mary appeared to her multiple times and told her all this stuff. So if you go online and look at the Lourdes Tourism Board site, this is what it says. A few hundred people went with the seer, that's the little girl Bernadette, to the grotto on that morning. As they looked on in amazement, thinking her mad, the young girl began to scrape up the muddy soil in the depths of the grotto, then scooped up the resulting mixture of water and mud with her hands and drank it. She also washed her face with it. Go and drink from the spring and wash yourself there were the instructions given by the lady and heard by Bernadette alone. After this discovery, people came to the spring to drink the water and splash it on their faces. The first miraculous healings occurred in the days that followed. The Lord's Spring became a place of pilgrimage in itself and offered a new hope for millions of sick people worldwide. That's the tourism board. So thousands of people still come there every day ever since the 1850s, 1860s. And the tourism board describes what will happen if you go. Large marble baths are filled with the famous Lourdes water. Just after the grotto by the river, the pilgrims immerse themselves in this water, which has a temperature of 12 degrees Celsius. You first have to arrive during the opening times and wait on benches provided in front of the heavy stone doors. An army of volunteers from the hospitality of Our Lady of Lourdes will be there to guide you. No need to bring flip-flops, a swimsuit, or a towel. Everything will be provided for you. Everything is completely free of charge, but you can, of course, leave an offering. When your turn comes, a volunteer, male if you're a man, female if you're a woman, boy, that probably got complicated recently, <laughs> will lead you to your bath. In this small individual room, screened off by curtains, the stripping down is physical as well as spiritual. The pared down setting, the baths made of bluish rock, the simple cloth robe, you experience an atmosphere of prayer and contemplation, assisted by two volunteers. Then you move towards the bath and the two people on either side of you help you in the Lord's water for a brief immersion. So things like that are all over the world. Um, that's a, one of the big ones in Europe, but uh, it's human nature. There, if you think that there's some place or some hope 
that the divine can be persuaded to relieve your suffering by being in that place where something happened or some kind of, uh, you know, you could do some act there or something like that. Then somewhere God has been or appeared or angels have been or appeared. That's such a common thing. And so that was going on in the first century too. And it went on at this pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. And by the way, that's exactly how healing prophets on TV do it. You know, they've got some special connection and you give them a lot of money and they'll pray over you or your envelope or something like that. And, uh, and it's the hopes of desperate people that they take advantage of all of that kind of thing. Free of charge, of course, but you can live in offering if you wish. It may improve your chances if you donate. And so the new, the new way to say it is to actually guilt you into it by, or f scare you into it by saying, um, you need to sow, you need to sow your seed to get the harvest. And that's always money to them, always. So um, anyway, that, that racket has been around for a long time and it was going on there too. I don't, doesn't say anything at the pool of Bethesda that people were charging, which is good. So you actually could, if you made it, <laughs> if you could get faster than the next person, you can get well there for free. But uh, so verse three says, a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered were there at this particular feast and many, many people with all kinds of afflictions. But our attention in John's story is to go to one man out of that multitude of afflicted people. So we don't know his name, uh, but this man has been sick for 38 years, 38 years affliction. We don't know how long he was beside the pool of Bethesda. I don't think he was been laying there for 38 years, but somebody brought him there and uh, hoping to heal him at some point. So he may have been drawn there by the promises of the pool of Bethesda tourism board. I don't know, but um, he believes the idea though, apparently that if the waters are stirred, then an angel is doing that and the first person in will get healed. So it's a race for a blessing. Now folks, um, that's a superstition. That's not a real thing. God does not make people race to get a healing over other people and climb over other people to get into a pool of water. That's not from God. That is, an angel wasn't doing that. It was, a, it was a myth and these people believed the myth just like the Lord's thing or anything else like that. So upon arriving in Jerusalem, Jesus comes and sees this man. Verse five, a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition. So he knows all about this man, just as he knew the whole history of that Samaritan woman in chapter four, right? He's got divine knowledge, so he knows that, right? So um, we're not told why Jesus picked him out of all the other people who were afflicted there that day, but clearly it was a divine appointment that God had a purpose in it. And Jesus' whole interaction with him is kind of different. It's unique because there's, there's no direct mention that this man actually put his faith in Jesus, quite unlike the Samaritan woman in chapter four, who actually became kind of an evangelist for Jesus as the Messiah. You know, she, she was all in. Doesn't really say that about this guy. So I hope that was true of him. It just does, John doesn't mention that. But he certainly granted a great miracle of complete instantaneous healing. But I don't know if there's any spiritual fruit from this man. He might just had his body healed. Um, there's, there's other reasons for healing him in this situation, which we're about to get to. So um, Jesus does select him and he goes up to him and he asks him kind of an interesting question. Do you wish to get well? Now, yeah, <laughs> would probably be his answer, right? So why, why ask that question? Well, the only thing he's thinking about 
is getting well by beating other people to the water. That's what's in his mind. That's what he's going for. So he answers and says, verse 7, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. So I keep losing the race. That's his problem. See, that's what he thinks his problem is. I keep losing the race. And you can see from verse 7 why someone felt it would help to insert the details about the belief in the angels stirring up the waters a little earlier, you know, so you have that context, because that's totally where this guy's head is. So the man says he can't make it to the water, and Jesus says something still more surprising. And he doesn't say, I'll help you get there. I'm pretty strong. I'm young. I'll carry you over. I'll push that guy out of the way, and we'll get you down to the water. He doesn't say that. No, in verse 8, he says, get up, pick up your pallet, he had some bedding there, and walk. Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And here John uses in his gospel Mark's favorite word in his gospel. Anybody know what Mark's favorite word is? Immediately. <laughs> that Mark's gospel is immediately, immediately, immediately. It's a fast gospel. That's why it's short. Verse 9. Immediately the man became well, completely well, picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now this guy's been sick for 38 years. You've got to go to physical therapy first. <laughs> they got to work your legs. No, this is Jesus healing somebody. It's complete, instantaneous. That's the whole point of it. He was not only pain-free, he was robust, and he didn't need physical therapy or anything. He was well. So he picks up his bedding and starts walking. It's an incredible miracle. It's an absolutely amazing miracle. Instant health after 38 years of being seriously impaired. And now comes the key sentence of chapter 5. It, it launches the whole thing that's about to happen here this great discourse of Jesus on who he was. It says, now it was the Sabbath on that day. That's why it's so important. It's Saturday. What difference does that make? Well, I think Jesus wanted this miracle in the temple on Saturday. I think that was his plan to do it. He, he didn't heal everybody there. He's doing this for a very specific purpose. We all know that the law of Moses forbids people from working on the Sabbath, right? It's a day of rest. Shops are supposed to be closed. You're not supposed to go out into your fields and sow crops or harvest or do anything like that. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath day. It was a day of rest, right? We also know that rabbinic Judaism in the first century buried the law of Moses under tons of little rules that are not in the Bible, that have nothing to do with the Bible, but which they judged everyone by. And we're not told why Jesus picked this guy out of all the others who were afflicted that day, but I think it had more to do with the Sabbath idea than him. So the rabbis, now the rabbis wouldn't say, we buried the law of Moses. They wouldn't say that. They, they would say, we're, we protected the law of Moses. That's what we did. So to make sure you never break the law of Moses, we've added all kinds of extra things. So there's no way you could break the law of Moses if you follow all of our rules, right? And then, of course, they followed all the rules. Well, they said they did. They followed all the rules so you would think they were at a higher level because most people could not even begin to keep all the rules. There were just so many. I mean, you couldn't even hardly live your life doing it. Hundreds of minute regulations were imposed on the populace so no one could come close to breaking the law of Moses. That's what they were thinking. So one of the hundreds of regulations working against working on the Sabbath were very detailed regulations against carrying. Carrying. <laughs> carrying my butt, right? They were against that. You couldn't do that. 
And that's still that way today among Orthodox Jews. Now, you know, Judaism is like Christianity. There's a, most of it's super liberal and doesn't believe anything in the Bible anyway. They just go to church but, um, or synagogue. But Orthodox Jews are really serious about the law of Moses and the Bible. So, so, and that rabbinical teaching has carried on for 2,000 years. So I actually went on the site for one of the Orthodox Union and uh, what they say about carrying today. And there's some really interesting stuff there. So these are the rules you have to keep. We can get some idea, I'm quoting, we can get some idea how serious carrying on the Sabbath is from, from the following law. Now it's not from Moses. The law is from the Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, the great council way back in ancient times that made these extra rules. When Rosh Hashanah falls on the Sabbath, the shofar is not sounded. The shofar is that ram's horn thing. They, yeah, exactly. There you got it. Thank you. Thank you for doing your impression of a shofar. Very good. So this was, and it says, this was legislated by the Sanhedrin for the most interesting reason. Suppose that a synagogue has only one shofar and it became lost or damaged. Imagine the embarrassment and breach of ceremony involved in not being able to sound the shofar on the most solemn day of Rosh Hashanah. How great the temptation to carry a replacement shofar from another synagogue or from someone's home. You can't carry on the Sabbath. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. We can't blow the shofar. And it says, this would involve a gross violation of the Sabbath. Carrying a little horn. To avoid this problem, the Sanhedrin decreed that the shofar shall never be sounded on the Sabbath at all. So just in case somebody broke the shofar or lost it and somebody had to go home and bring one, they just canceled doing it. So there would be no temptation to carry a little horn. on this. Now, is that the law of Moses? No, he doesn't say anything about something like that. He just says, don't go out work in your fields and do that. Moses never contemplated something that silly, ever. Here's more. This is about your home. This is from the Orthodox Union. The spirit of the law, however, forbids the carrying or handling of unnecessary objects, even indoors. The Sanhedrin therefore legislated the categories of muktza, things which may not be handled on the Sabbath. These include such useless things as pebbles and stones. They also include things which may not be used on the Sabbath, such as pencils, candles, and money. So that's Orthodox Judaism today. So it was just like that in its own way in the first century as well. In Jesus' day, they measured you by keeping those little extra rules that the rabbis invented. That's how they measured your holiness, your spirituality, by the rules. Now, Jesus attacked in Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus just lays into these scribes and Pharisees, like seriously. He says, you guys follow these little rules and you ignore what he, Jesus calls the weightier matters of the law. And he, picks, he, said, he mentions justice and righteousness and mercy and faithfulness and things like that. So let's go back to John 5 and let's pick it up at verse 10. So the Jews, and in John's gospel when he says the Jews, he is a Jew, but he's, talk, he's, he's talking about the religious leadership generally when he says the Jews. He's talking about the leaders of Israel. Um, so the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, verse 10, it is the Sabbath. It is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. It wasn't my idea. <laughs> it's actually a good answer 
the man who instantly made me well after 38 years of affliction, I sort of thought he might have the authority to tell me I could pick up the pallet and walk with it. So the rabbis and the temple leaders have a choice because he just told them who told him to do it and why he's doing it, right? Because he was marvelously, wonderfully healed. So the rabbis and the temple leaders and the temple have a choice they can make. They can marvel that a man afflicted for 38 years who couldn't, couldn't even walk was completely healed and they could rejoice with him and want to know more about Jesus. That, that could have been what they did. Or they could get really angry at this guy for breaking their man-made rules that have nothing to do with the law of Moses. Guess which they chose? <laughs> they chose anger, yeah. That's religion. That is religion. And Jesus is totally opposed to that. Religion is man-centered and man-made. It's a corruption of what God said at best. It's just made up by people at the worst. So they're going to enforce their rules instead of rejoice with this man that he was healed. So you know how the thinking goes. You know, you know, you let one healed man walk around with his pallet. <laughs> Guess what's going to happen? Everybody that's miraculously healed is going to want to carry their pallet around. Then we've, then we've lost. Everything's gone. Right? That's how they think. Right? So verse 12. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed didn't know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in the place. Jesus didn't even introduce himself. He just healed this guy and then slipped away in the crowd. Right? So he didn't know. He honestly didn't know. So what do they want? What do, the, what do the rabbis want? They want to go after the healer, but they need a name. So they're going to have to wait. But now the guy can walk. So where does he walk? Does he take a walk outside Jerusalem? Does he walk down to one of the other towns? Does he go visit his mother or anything like that? No, he can actually go into the temple now. Remember, we're outside the gate here, outside the sheep gate. He can go through the sheep gate. He can walk in there and go to the temple and praise God in the temple. He can actually worship in the temple probably for the first time in ages, right? So he does that. That's where he goes. It's a blessed day, and he goes into the temple. He didn't know where to find Jesus. Jesus is in there. The temple's huge. Throngs of people in there. He didn't know where to find Jesus, but he did know where to appeal to God and bring his thanksgiving to God, and that was in the temple. So he goes in there, and Jesus, who is God, knows where he is and comes and finds him. Verse 14, so among all the throngs of people in the temple, Jesus finds the man, and he says something else we don't expect either. Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. I have never heard an average person quote that line of Jesus in my life. People don't quote that one. They quote other ones. Judge not. But they don't quote this one. I just, it just interests me that they don't. I mean, I, I don't think I ever have just normal spiritual conversations with people. You have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse may happen to you. <laughs> so um, I've never heard anybody mention that. They certainly don't tell you that on, on television. Um, when they want your money. But he does say it, and sometimes, sometimes afflictions are related to human sin. Not always, not even most of the time, we just get sick and things happen to us, right? But sometimes afflictions are meant to get our attention and call us to repentance. So that, 
you find that in the scriptures. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 29 and following, Paul actually flat out says it. If you take communion in an unworthy way, some of you are sick and some of you have fallen asleep, which means they've died. That you can't be treating holy things in an unholy way. And James, in the book of James, in chapter 5, he, he talks about calling the elders to come and anoint you with oil and pray for you. So that, and he says there, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. So that was part of that. That's part of that process is to make sure your heart is right. Now, again, afflictions can come to you for all kinds of reasons that have nothing to do with sin, but sometimes they do have to do with sin. So it's appropriate to confess your sins, right? So um, anyway, he's met Jesus. Now he has a name. So verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So again, John gave us one line that Jesus said. They obviously had a conversation. Jesus introduced himself. He found out who he was and all of that. So John's just telling you what you have to know for the story to go advance. So I don't think he went and told the religious leaders because he was upset with Jesus or, you know what he said? It was said it was about my sin. No, it wasn't. I don't, I don't think that's it. He just, those are his religious leaders. They wanted to know the name. He's going to go back and tell the name, right? I don't think he's being malicious at all. They asked him, uh, they asked him who told, this is how they phrase it, right? Who told you to carry that, your pallet, your bedding? But when he identifies Jesus to them, how does he identify Jesus? He doesn't say, Jesus is the guy who told me to carry it this time. He says, this is the one who made me well. Both in verse 11 and in verse 15, he says, he describes Jesus as the one who made me well. So that's how he actually describes it. So once again, the miracle of it is laid right before the religious authorities. Yeah, the guy that made me well, his name is Jesus, if you want to go talk to him, okay? So again, that miracle is put right before them. They have a choice to make. Their choice is, he broke our rules. That's what they're upset about. So they do come after Jesus. Verse 16, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath. The word persecuted in verse 16, uh, Greek has different tenses than English, and this is an imperfect tense, which meant past, it happened in the past, but it, so he's talking about something that happened already, but it's a continuous thing. It's not a moment. It's a continuous act. So they were continually persecuting Jesus. They were harassing him um, in this day. It doesn't record any violence yet, but watch their response to his words because Jesus says something rather amazing to them while they're persecuting him, giving him a hard time, right? It says he answered them, and here he's being really deliberate in what he's saying, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. Now, if he was talking about his dad, Joseph, that would be a different thing. He's talking about his heavenly father, right? Jesus always calls God his father. My father's working, so I'm working. Now, if I, why didn't he say, you know what? I wanted you guys to understand your rules are not Moses, so we're not bound by your rules. That would have been a simple thing to say, but he's in the temple talking to the religious leaders and he wants to start talking about who he is. So they get it. That's why this is happening. He wants that conversation. And that's why he says that. He doesn't say that to solve the situation. He says that to expose who he is and their reaction to who he is. And they react, well, just kind of like what you might expect. So he's arguing from his unique relationship with the father that he's allowed to do this. 
So he knew exactly what he was saying. The father works on the Sabbath and his only begotten son works on the Sabbath too. So here's out of Jesus' own mouth is the basis for all those marvelous divine names that we saw in John chapter 1 about Jesus. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He's the light of men. He's the only begotten God. All those things we talked about in chapter 1. He's unleashing that on them right now, these ideas. So remember, John's gospel, the purpose of it is, is about telling us who Jesus is. That's his purpose. He's the eternal God become flesh, become human. And the Jews totally get what he's saying. They understand it perfectly. Verse 18, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to hear him. No, that wasn't the word. They were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's exactly what he was doing. And they got it. They totally understood it. So now we're moving from giving this guy a hard time to this man needs to die. This is very early in Jesus' ministry, but they're already moving in that direction. Equal with God. That word equal in the Greek text is the word isos. And I was trying to think of English words that have it. And the only thing I could come up with is an isosceles triangle. Who remembers that from school? What's an, I think, I know Bill would, he taught science. <laughs> isosceles triangle is one that has equal sides, right? Two equal sides at least. So they're the same. So what was Jesus doing? Making himself the same as God. That's what he was declaring, which is an absolute blasphemy if it's not true, Right? So that's what he was saying. If Jesus was not equal with God, then this is the time to tell people who want to kill him that he's not saying this. Oh, no, I didn't mean that. He could have said that, right? I mean, that would have been the proper thing to say. But um, fellas, I'm just speaking about kind of, you know, we're all God's children. That's all I meant by that. That's a, he could have said something, but no, he doesn't do that. His relationship with the Father is completely unique. It's eternal. The Father and the Son are one essence. Human beings who are in God's family are creatures, but he's not a creature. He's the creator. Go back to John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. It says that he created all things. Nothing has been created that he didn't create. He's, he's eternal. He's uncreated. And folks, he's just getting started. That's the opening salvo in this long, wonderful discourse. But we're out of time. So... <laughs> Come back next week and we'll start hammering our way through one of the most amazing passages in the Bible. Let's pray. Our great Father, we thank you for showing us just a glimpse of your Son today, your unique Son, the eternal Son, the very essence of your nature. May we never diminish him or question him, but embrace all that the Scripture says that he is. And may we prepare our hearts for what follows in this wonderful book of Jesus' friend John. We pray in his name, Christ's name. Amen.